Genesis 25, 19 to 34, for the end of the chapter. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, of Padam Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were complete, completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she, she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of the red stew, from, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. To die. Of what use is a birthright, birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Let's pray. Merciful Father, we praise you for your word. We praise you for your sovereignty. We praise you for the complexities in which you live and have your being. Lord, you are beyond all fathomable thought. Our imagination cannot rein you in. Our words cannot describe you. And Lord, as we come to heavy teaching, the teaching of your sovereignty and man's responsibility, as we look at how you work within the midst of ordinary means of human will and human uh, patterns and rhythms of life, yet you planned it all from the beginning. Lord, would we be led to praise you? Would we be led to know you more and would the fear of the Lord, the fear of Yahweh be upon us? Would we put you on the throne as you belong on the throne? Would you be the most high in our lives? Would we realize we are but dust? Would we be humbled? Would our pride be extinguished? 
And Lord, would the fear of the Lord, would, would the fear of you be upon the church that we may have a deep and great affection for you and go forth and proclaim to the generations that our Lord reigns, that Yahweh reigns. He reigns today, you will reign tomorrow, you will reign forever. As your word says, from everlasting to everlasting. May we meditate on these words, Lord. May we be humble as we receive your scriptures. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, all knowledge of God, every knowledge we come to, every doctrine, every bit of theology we study must lead us to the praise of God. These two words in the study of scripture Theology means knowledge of God or the study of the knowledge of God and doxology means the praise of God. One leads to the other. Theology leads to doxology or the knowledge of God leads to the praise of God. This is important for today. We are looking at meat, as Paul would say, or the writer of Hebrews would say, you need meat and not milk. You need to move on from the elementary teachings and grow in your understanding of scripture so that you are not tossed to and fro by every wave and wave and wind of teaching that is out there. So we study today things too wonderful for us. The story of Esau and Jacob is too wonderful for us to comprehend at times. Yet as Paul in his teachings in Romans 9 to 11 the complexities of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility and the choosing of Israel and the gathering of the nations. As Paul tries to teach in his wisdom that has been given from the Holy Spirit, his inspired word, we see that it ends in praise. The whole of 9, 10, and 11, and please, I can encourage you this week, go forth and read chapters 9, 10, and 11, and notice that the way Paul finishes is with praise to God. And what we first need to know when we look at these chapters is they're not for the spiritual elite. They're not for pastors. They're not for the local bishops that Paul put in place around the, the churches, they are for the church, the whole church, every single one of the believers. They are for the Roman church, the Ephesian church, the church of Corinth, and they are for the church of Hamilton South today. So when we look at these teachings of the sovereignty of God, predestination, election, limited atonement, all these phrases that pastors would often learn at Bible college, that should be taught to the congregation because the letters were written to a congregation, not to pastors or not just to pastors. So as we see in the letter to the Romans, these great, too wonderful for me teachings are given to the whole church. And what I want us to reflect on first is that it should lead us to praise. So in chapter 11, verse 33, after Paul's great teaching, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of God? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him 
that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. What an incredible way to wrap up deep, complex teaching. And what we see from these teachings, if you spend time in it, and we are going to barely touch the surface of Romans 9 today as we look at Genesis 25. But what we see is that if our knowledge, if our knowledge does not lead to praise, it is an idolatry of knowledge. If your knowledge of God is purely there so you can put on a facade of spiritual elitism or religiosity, then you have an idolatry of knowledge. You want to be puffed up by what you know. The other side of that is if your praise isn't fueled by the knowledge of the scriptures, you have idolatry because you praise one you do not know. You have fashioned a God that is outside of the scriptures. What the scriptures reveal to us is that God has made himself known. And if he has made himself known, he uh, is to be known exactly the way he has revealed to us. Psalm 19 says that he has revealed himself through creation and through his word. And if he has revealed himself through creation and through his word, we should not deviate to the right or to the left of those things. What we should do is praise exactly who he says he is. We have a tendency to find things too hard to understand, so we will move off and start a branch or a sect of Christianity. If we think of many sects or cults today, we see that the Jehovah's Witness found the complexity of the Trinity complicated, and rather than bowing and worshipping to a God they could not comprehend, they started something of a false religion. They started worshipping a false God. The same can be true for us today. When we find things too hard, too wonderful for us, we may choose to start worshipping a God we don't know. And that is not the God of the scriptures because he has revealed knowledge of himself to us. As we continue on through the how God has revealed himself to us in the scriptures, Nehemiah 6, uh, 9, 6 reveals to us this great praise, this great inspired prayer of Nehemiah's. And it's a phrase that is repeated all throughout the scriptures to some variation. And it says, you are Yahweh, you alone, you have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth, all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them and the host of heaven worships you. This phrase is repeated throughout Scripture in some variation. You'll see it in the prophets. You'll see it in the Psalms, that God is the God of heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in them, the sea and all that is in them. If God is this God who is the creator and preserver of life in the heavens, the earth and the sea, then no one gets to question him. No one gets to give him counsel. No one gets to offer him advice. This is the God who we are to worship, the God who is the most high. 
as Psalm 115 says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. When we come to passages like Genesis 25, which have clear New Testament teaching in Romans 9, we are confronted with the reality that we as humans have an inability to change and that God is sovereign over everything. The question we must ask is, are we happy to worship a God? Are we willing to submit to God even when we can't wrap him around our minds? Are we happy to worship a God who is determined the end from the beginning, yet we are still responsible for our actions and the way we live our life? That's what we're going to explore today. And I pray and hope that we will have a humility to receive God's word the way it is written without any of our own twistings upon it. Verse 19 of Genesis 25, we'll be jumping back to Romans 9 in a little bit, but let's see how the story of Abraham transitioning to Isaac uh, goes on. These are the generations of Isaac. Verse 19, Abraham's son, Isaac, fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah. Of course, Rebekah was from the line of Abraham and not a Canaanite, as we have already looked at. She had to be pure because Isaac himself was not the offspring who could redeem the impure. It says here that she was barren. This this, uh, passage starts very familiar with what we've seen in Abraham's life. First of all, we see this common phrase that has been repeated. These are the generations of. These are the generations of Noah. These are the generations of Abraham. Now, these are the generations of Isaac. What it is saying is that the story is about to transition from one patriarch to the other, from one main character to the other. And the character that we are moving on to is Isaac. Yet... Isaac is such a very brief story in Genesis. We have only a few chapters on him because, as you'll see, even in this story, we jump right into Jacob and Esau. We have a little bit next week on Isaac before we move back to Jacob and Esau and follow Jacob as he goes off to find a bride for himself. Here we have a summary of 20 years. Right here, it's told, told us that Isaac was 40 years old when he took his wife, Rebecca, and it took another 20 years for him to have a child, for him to have his twins, Esau and Jacob. The way verse 21 is written, it almost seems that it's a quick response. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and, Isaac, uh, and Rebecca his wife conceived. That summary, that single verse almost makes us feel like Isaac suddenly realized that some years had gone by and Rebecca hasn't had a child. So he prayed once, God answered, and they had a child. I don't believe that's how we should take that verse. I think as many commentators also would believe that Isaac is deliberately placed with a mystery behind him. Isaac is deliberately there as this foreshadow of Christ. He's a man who doesn't leave the promised land. 
He's a man who doesn't go down to Egypt. He remains in the promised land as a symbolic representation that he will possess the land or his offspring will possess the land forever. Isaac's greatest achievement in life was that he imitated Christ in being offered up by his father. Father, That is purely the greatest story that we should hold on to from Isaac. And it's why the scriptures deliberately leave Isaac quite vague with not much of a story and background behind him. Isaac is there as this image, this type of Jesus, a a, a foreshadow of the one who will give his life, conquer death, conquer sin, and crush the serpent's head. But what we do see of Isaac, we see his wife was also barren. His wife was barren for 20 years. So Isaac demonstrates some sense of faithfulness that he remains in the promised land for 20 years, knowing that he is meant to have children. It has been promised to him when he was being offered on the altar. God said that it's through this child, this son of yours, Abraham, that the nation of Israel will come about. Not only that, but Rebecca had had a prophecy spoken over her by her family that she would have sons who would sit at the enemy's gates. So both Isaac and Rebecca uh, individually have had these promises and prophetic words spoken over them to believe that they would have children. Yet 20 years has gone by. And I would say that for those 20 years, Isaac prayed. This phrase in verse 21 is not Isaac prayed once and God answered his prayer. This is Isaac labored in prayer. Isaac spent years waiting on the Lord, growing in strength of the Lord as he waited upon the Lord, as we saw his father before him wait upon the Lord, as we'll see many faithful saints follow him and wait upon the Lord. The barrenness of women in Scripture is, of course, a great picture of the miraculous birth of Christ. Every barren woman is pointing towards an even greater birth. Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, Rachel, Hannah, Elizabeth, and finally, the miraculous birth of Christ, the virgin birth. What we see from just this small verse here in verse 21 is that our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases for his glory and he makes it clear so that no one can boast. Isaac had no control over bringing about a nation from himself. Rebecca had no control over making sure that she conceived a child. It was all in the hands of God and it was all up to them to just wait upon his gracious graciousness as he would bring it about in his own time. She conceives, and it's quite an unusual uh, pregnancy, as we can see in verse 22 and what follows. The children struggled within her. And she said, if this is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, until Uh, The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. What we know about these two 
Isaac and Rebecca is that Isaac grew up all the days of his life knowing Yahweh. All the days of his life, he knew who Yahweh was. He walked with Abraham, and Abraham was a friend of God, as the New Testament reveals to us. What we know about Rebecca is that she did not grow up knowing Yahweh. It may be that the first time she ever heard of the Lord, Yahweh, or the God of Abraham, was when the servant met her at the well. Now, when we go back to that story, it seems that she responds quite openly. Well, that was pretty common of the day. Uh, gods were so, uh, so many gods among the uh, Mesopotamian tribes that they would often just embrace someone else's God and say, well, that's your belief. Let me just jump on board with that. What we know of Rebecca is that she would have grown up probably with Abraham's heritage, uh, the moon god. Uh, the moon gods that Abraham once sat upon probably the Tower of Babel and gazed into the skies praying for the moon god to come. Well, Sarah, uh, Rebecca probably experienced somewhat the same. But through her 20 years now with Isaac, when trouble comes and her life is in turmoil, the children in her womb are causing havoc uh, and causing her pain. We can imagine that this is quite unusual. She would have had uh, nurses and maids that would have been around her and they would have been like, this is not as normal as we've seen before. You're in, you're in a unique sense of pain. Well, she, through the discipleship of Isaac and through her experience of the promises of God, have learnt, has learnt that in the midst of strife, in the midst of suffering, I will go to the Lord to inquire. I'll go to Yahweh to inquire. So she goes to Yahweh and she inquires of Yahweh and seeks his word and his understanding. It's a great reminder for us, just this subtle minder that in our suffering and in the midst of our pain, we can turn to the word and prayer to inquire of the Lord. And there is great relief in our confusion. I love Psalm 73, 17 that says, Until I went into the sanctuary, sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. If it wasn't for going into the sanctuary of God, I would never have understood is what that scripture, that little verse is saying to us. So for Rebecca here, she goes to the sanctuary of, the God, of, of God and she seeks his counsel. And to... And to our amazement and the graciousness and mercifulness of God, he speaks to her. Now, this is a pretty significant moment. Sarah had very little interaction with God, but Rebecca here is having a direct word from God. And it seems that Isaac isn't actually there. Actually, if we follow on the story of Esau and Jacob, it sounds to me, and as I continue to study most to most, that Isaac didn't know this promise that the younger would the older would serve the younger so we see the lord respond with this great statement two nations are in your womb that's quite daunting i think for any woman to hear uh, and one is stronger the older will serve the younger god in his graciousness responds with words too wonderful for her to understand Yet he still gives her this knowledge. She didn't get an explanation as to how this would play out. 
She wasn't told that eventually Jacob would have to flee and run from his brother. She wasn't told that one day both of them will be great nations uh, and that Edom will be the nation of Esau and Israel will be the nation of Jacob and that there will be a king called David over Israel. She wasn't told any of that. She was told simply the mysteries that these two little infants were at that stage uh, in the womb, not even out of the womb. These two babies would one day become nations. That was too wonderful for her to comprehend. But what we see is this prophetic word from God is certainly faithful because in 2 Chronicles 21.8, we see Edom who has been serving Israel when David was king. And that is Edom is, of course, Esau's nation comes from Esau and Israel comes from Jacob. So we do see the older serving the younger. What this reveals to us, this little phrase, is that God has already determined exactly what will follow. God has determined before these children were even conceived, before they were even uh, brought forth, before Rebecca and Isaac knew that they were going to have two sons, God had determined what would take place. They would both become a nation. One would be stronger. One would be weaker. The older one will serve the younger. It reminds us of Last week, when we looked at Psalm 139, verse 16, it's not just for Esau and Jacob that this was determined, but for all of us. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. The Bible is unapologetic unapologetic about the fact that God has determined all things, yet at the same time, man is responsible for his choices. Well, how do we reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? Well, to this question, Spurgeon was asked once and he responded by saying, do friends need reconciling? Do friends need reconciling? Sovereignty of God and man's responsibility, they are friends. They work together. They are not at odds with one another, how often people put them at odds together. And I think he's tongue-in-cheek response to friends need reconciling is a helpful reminder for us that when we put these things at odds against each other, we are doing something the Scriptures never does. We'll see how this plays out, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility as we continue through this passage. But let's first put God in his rightful position which Romans 9 helpfully does. When Paul is teaching on the sovereignty of God and man's responsibility, his first position that he does is he places God in God's rightful position as the creator and sustainer of all things, as the fashioner and molder of the clay, and we are the clay. So let me read. I'm going to read Romans 9 verse 10 to 13, and then just jump down a bit and read 17 to 21. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, 
She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Jumping down to verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, I raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honourable use and one another for dishonourable use? Well, here, in this teaching of the Old Testament scriptures and the teaching of the sovereignty of God and man's responsibility, Paul uses two stories. First one, of course, is the story we are in today, Esau and Jacob. The other is the story of Pharaoh. Pharaoh ruling over the Israelites and keeping them in slavery. We're going to look at both of those in a moment, but to explain God choosing, or to exp- what Paul does in order to explain God uh, being able to choose, he says he's choosing according to himself. When he looks at Esau and Jacob, It says, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. God chooses according to himself. And we may ask, as the scripture does say, is that fair? Does God have the right? Or we may go even further to say, who is this God that thinks he can decide my life for me? To which... Paul responds, he is the molder, he is the creator, he is the craftsman. And if he is the craftsman, he has every right to create and fashion however he pleases. And he gives just a simple analogy of a craftsman. A craftsman that's making different uh, pots and bowls and cups and mugs and some he uses the lump of clay and he makes it for a common use. He, he gives it to the poorest of poors. And to some he makes this beautiful mug with detail but the same clay and he gives it to the king. The image that Paul gives us here is he says, it's as if you just went into a craftsman or a grand artist's workshop And you said to him, you can't use that paint on that basic artwork. You can't use that paint that you've just used to make my expensive piece of art. And he could say to you, it's my paint, it's my skill, and this is my workshop. I'll do as I please. Well, that's what Paul is saying, just he's saying it on a cosmic level. God is the molder. He's in the heavens. He made the heavens, all that is in them, the earth, all that is in them, the sea, all that is in them. He does all that he pleases. And as Paul finished his teaching at the end of chapter 11 on these wonderful, too wonderful for me teachings, he says, who has given God counsel? Well, who has given that God should repay?
It's a humbling thought for the person who says, who are you, O God, to do that? That person who says that has to question, what counsel are they going to give God? What knowledge do you think you can offer God that he does not already know? This passage lays out two truths very clearly that our human nature hates. One is it elevates God to a level where no one has the right to question him. It puts God and God alone on the throne and the scriptures do this all the way through. He sits above the cherubim. The cherubim were the greatest, most beautiful created being that God ever fashioned and God sits above them. In every picture, every image, whether it be the tabernacle, whether it be the heavens of heavens, God was above the cherubim. So God is above everything. The other thing that it does is it puts humans at the the incredibly low level of being lumps of clay. And we read Romans 9 and we go, how dare you? How dare you, Apostle Paul, tell us that we are just lumps of clay? But the, the Bible has always told us we are lumps of clay. We were created from dust. Psalm 90 says we will return to dust. You were dust, you will become dust. God has given human beings the value that they have. God has given us the value that we have because he gave us his image. But ultimately, we are just clay. We don't like this passage because it attacks our pride. We want to have great value. We want to be known. We want to be the greatest. Every great king of the past thought they were God. Pharaoh thought he was God. Nebuchadnezzar thought he was God. All these kings thought they were God. And we ourselves think we have ultimate rule in our life as well. I want to decide. Now, the only thing that stops us from believing this is our pride. If we sit down and read the scriptures honestly, as they are at face value, we see we don't get the option to question God. He is far above. You have no counsel to give him. You have nothing that he hasn't already given you. And the dangerousness of this pride is that we think that we can give God the counsel. And if we don't get to give God the counsel, then we start to fashion a God that we would prefer to praise. And we believe in a God that submits to our will. We believe in more of a genie type God that gives us wishes rather than a prayer that says, not my will, God, but yours. So when we come to this passage of Scripture, we must be humbled, humbled in order to receive the teaching that God is sovereign, yet we are responsible for our every decision. What we see here in this teaching of Romans 9 is that Paul uses Pharaoh as an example. For this very purpose, I raised you up. God is saying that Pharaoh was deliberately born, created, raised up in order that God would one day bring judgment upon him and he would be destroyed and his nation would be laid bare. Now, is that unfair that he raised him up for that? Well, no, it's not because Pharaoh wanted it. 
When Pharaoh lived in his life, he wanted to go to war against the God of Moses or the Israelite God. What we see is, yes, God's purpose and plan was to bring Pharaoh to destruction. But look at Pharaoh. He had warning after warning. He had invitation after invitation. Yet what did Pharaoh do? He hardened his heart. Did Pharaoh get to choose what he wanted to do? Absolutely, he chose what he wanted to do. He wanted to fight against the sovereign God and he lost. God's will was determined beforehand and Pharaoh's choices were laid out. Pharaoh got what he wanted and God was sovereign in it all. If we head back to our passage on Genesis, Genesis 25, the first example that Paul uses between Esau and Jacob, we'll see how man's responsibility plays out in this story as well, in God's sovereignty. Firstly, we see that these two sons were very different. In verses 24 to 27, we are seeing a, quite a, uh, a stark difference between them. When the, her days... 24, verse 24, when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Esau was 60 years old when she bore them. Uh, Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. That would be awkward if he was 60. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. We already know what God's sovereign plan is for these two. We've had it stated before they were even born that Esau would serve Jacob, or another way of saying that is that Jacob would receive the heavenly blessing of being the promised nation. But now we have to find out how the responsibility plays out on their part. God's determined it. How does this come apart about through their choices? But first, before we get to that, we notice that these twins are more different than, uh, than any two twins you could probably imagine. One is a wild man. The other is a quiet man. One is a hairy man. The other is a smooth man. One has his father's love. The other has his mother's love. Different in every way. What we see in Jacob is that he was not the type of man that was going to become a powerful nation. Like David, he was a shepherd boy, where Esau is like Saul, the man who in every way could lead a nation, a head taller, stronger, wild, a warrior type. All along, God chooses according to himself, as Paul encourages us, in Corinthians, to think about our own calling. Corinthians 1.26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standard. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. No one can boast before God. Because as Paul says in his praise to God, who has given that God should repay? Everything you have is from God. Your intellect, your discipline, your power, your strength, your heritage, you did nothing to earn. Just think 
Why are you born in Australia? A country that has a medical system, Medicare, welfare, that has parenting payments. Why were you born here? Did you choose that? Did you elect to be here? Did your parents choose you to be born in this country? No, it was a gift. God gave you the gift of being an Australian. And much of your life, the reason you got to study, the reason you got to work, the reason you went to university is because of the very situation of which you were born into, because God placed you here. Of course, there are decisions in our life that change that and our responsibility does have a place in that. But if we ultimately come back down to the simplest of where we were born, does have value, has great value to play out. Now we get to Esau and Jacob and their responsibility in bringing out God's determined plan. Verse 29 to the end, 34 Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom, which means red. Jacob said, sell us your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. What use is this is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate, drank, rose, and went his way. Esau despised his birthright. So here is how it plays out. God planned to choose Jacob, but Isaac loved Esau. So how was this ever going to happen? Well, what we see in this story is two brothers that really don't like each other. They are competing they are competitive in every way and they, are, they, they, they don't seem to get along. They've been put against each other, probably by their parents in some ways from the very beginning. But what we see is their outlook on life is very different. Esau is looking at the here and now. And it's really important that we point out who they dwell with often. Esau is often around Isaac right? Isaac favored him. And Isaac would be telling Esau about how he would easily inherit Israel. While Jacob has inside knowledge, because Rebekah has inside knowledge. Rebekah knows that he is going to be the heir of Isaac, because God has told her that. This is really important to see how these play out and how their responsibility plays out. All the while, while Jacob is a learned man and a quiet man, he dwells on the future. Esau takes his birthright for granted and thinks about the immediate. I don't need to think of the future. My future is secure. I am just going to live for the here and now. Like the man that Jesus says, who builds bigger barns, eat, drink, be merry. Eat, drink and be merry. What we see is Jacob is a man who sets his eyes on the future promise. He doesn't know how it's going to play out yet, but he knows that it will happen because he has trusted in God's word through Rebecca. Now, often, and I would probably be in this category previously before I spent time in this passage, that as you read this at face value, Isaac seems like a jerk. But I don't believe that is the story that God is painting for us here. 
Not, uh, did I say Isaac? I meant Jacob. Jacob seems like a jerk for not giving his brother food. But I think what we actually see is Jacob being a man who is seeking first the kingdom of God while Esau is seeking first the here and now. Esau is seeking first an earthly kingdom while Jacob is seeking first something that is to inherit in the future. There's a key verse, and because of our chapters and verses, we miss it. But in chapter 26, verse 1, it says, Now there was a famine in the land. There's a famine in the land. The food was scarce at this time. Esau has been out hunting and clearly has come back with nothing. Maybe he's been out hunting for months and come back with nothing. Jacob has somehow managed to gather a few lentils together, maybe enough for a single meal. Often we read this story as if Jacob has provided a, an abundant meal for his whole family. But I think what we see here is this is a scarcity. This is a meal that is rare. This is a meal that is hard to come by. And with Jacob's eyes set on the kingdom of God, with Jacob's eyes set on the future promised land and Esau set on the here and now, this is how we see man's responsibility play out. Jacob is in many ways God's, God's uh, vessel of testing for Esau. He tests Esau by offering him, by not offering him food and seeing how much the food is worth to him. Now, if Esau had eyes for the kingdom of God, he would never give up his birthright for a single meal. But him taking it for granted and thinking because of his heritage, because of his uh his own doing, because I came out first, I will inherit Israel. He goes, well, this is just a silly game. I will just throw away my birthright. Well, what we actually see is he throws it away and God is present for him throwing it away. He despises his birthright. He trusts in himself. He thinks that he will just inherit it because he deserves, he is entitled to it. Yet Jacob is craftier, great Jacob is shrewd and thinks of the kingdom of God and uses something that is common, something that is just ordinary to bring about a future inheritance. There's a great story of this in the scriptures. And if you turn to Luke 16, it is a fascinating story, a parable that Jesus uses of the dishonest manager. And he says, it's a bit long and I'm not going to be able to explain it all, but you can think about it in your own time. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and, and charges were brought to him that he, this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the accounts of your management for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to him, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from the management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to his master, he said first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world, and this is the key part, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. 
I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. That verse 9 is a really key part, and it goes on to say that those who are faithful with little will be given a lot. Those who are faithful with what we have today will be given a lot in eternity. And this is a really interesting passage, and it sounds like the man is very dishonest, and he is. But what the, the teaching, and we've always got to remember that this is a parable. We don't want to exhaust it and take it further than Christ meant it to go. The teaching is in verse 9. I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth. Now, the, the term unrighteous wealth here is just things that are common to us things that aren't going to be in heaven with us. We're not going to take our Australian dollars to heaven. We're not going to take our houses to heaven. We're not going to take, so to speak, the lentil stew of Jacob to heaven. So unrighteous wealth was things that were just ordinary in this life. So that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. At some point, your unrighteous wealth is going to be nothing. The stew that Jacob has is at some point going to be worthless. But what's not going to be worthless? The eternal dwelling, heavenly home, the kingdom of God, the promised land. Those things are not going to be worthless. For Jacob, he didn't see the meal as this last and final effort to preserve him and keep him alive. What he saw was that one day God is going to bring him into a heavenly home or Israel into the promised land, as that was the foreshadow of it. He, Jacob, was shrewd. He was wise. And he tested Esau. And Esau was found wanting. So what we see here is God's sovereignty was that he was to determine, God determined before they were ever born, that Esau would serve Jacob and Jacob would become the blessed nation of Israel. How did this play out? It played out through their desires. Esau desired what? Esau desired the here and now, the blessing of this earth. Esau desired a meal that would sustain him for a moment, a single moment, while Jacob, his eyes were on the eternal kingdom the kingdom that would last forever and ever, God's kingdom. Jacob gave up his meal, probably the only meal he had for maybe a month or weeks, and he gave it up in order to inherit and take hold of a blessing that would last forever. Jacob here is the agent of God for Esau's testing. I don't believe Jacob was being cruel he wasn't being a harsh brother. He was merely setting his eyes on the kingdom of heaven where Esau was setting his eyes on the present. And it turned out that he would forfeit his birthright for a single meal as Hebrews 12 tells us and condemns Esau for doing so. What we see here in this story that Paul says is an illustration of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility is that God determined it and Esau and Jacob brought it about by their choices, by their wants. Esau 
wanted the meal over his birthright. Jacob wanted the kingdom over the meal. And God determined for it to happen. They are friends. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. God has determined your life and you will decide according to what you want, what you desire, how that will play out. The beauty is that in Christ Jesus, he changes our desires. God is the one who changes Jacob's desire. God is the one who changed my desires and your desires. He turned them away from sinful things and brought them to want him and trust in him. Through Christ Jesus, our Lord, we have been transformed from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We've been given a heart of flesh, not of stone. And now what we want, what we want is the kingdom of God. We need to put to death the deeds of the flesh and we at times walk in the ways of the flesh. But if we continue to walk in the way of the spirit, live according to his word and align our lives to the sovereignty of God, the will of God, we will see that our wants and our desires will change as Jacob's did. We see this story is not finished. This will happen again and there will be more deception. There will be more confusion and more questions to ask as to how God brings it about through the ordinary wills of humans' uh, choices. But what we know is ultimately God uses our decisions to bring about what he already has determined. We should finish with Romans 11, as Paul finished, when we have been taught on things too wonderful for us. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgment and how inscrutable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has, given, who has been his counsellor? Or who has given a gift that he, to him that he might repay? For from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we, oh, we thank you that you are in control. For a world where we chase after what we want in our own eyes has been evidently seen through the book of Judges, and it is vile and disgusting and worthy of being wiped out. But, Lord, you have determined the end from the beginning. Your purposes will stand. Your glory you will not give to another. You don't seek counsel from anyone. May the fear of the Lord fill this church and put you on the throne and make you, Lord, the... Make you in the rightful spot, put you in the rightful spot as King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, would we be humble? Would we allow the knowledge of your word to fuel our worship and our praise? Would we not fashion you into our own likeness? Would we not make you a God that tolerates wickedness and passes over judgment? For Lord, you judged Christ so severely for us on our behalf. You did not excuse our sin, but you punished the Holy One for us. How vile it is for us to say that you would pass over judgment and excuse sin. Lord, I pray that we would be humble to accept that our choices 
our real and your sovereignty is, has determined. That just as Jacob and Esau got what they wanted, yet you determined from the beginning how it would play out. Lord, help us to comprehend this mystery that is too wonderful for us. And when we can't comprehend it and we can't understand it, instead of ignoring it or not choosing to believe it, will we sit at the end of Romans 11 and say, who has given you counsel? I can't. I can't give you counsel. And I can't give you anything that you haven't already got. All that I have is yours. All my knowledge, all my counsel is yours. Let that be our place, Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.